0: Good morning. Happy New Year. Our text this morning is Numbers 21-9. Numbers 21-9, that was the first scripture lesson uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open up there. Let me uh, begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who feeds us all good things. So Lord, we open our mouths and ask you to do what you have said and fill them. We pray in the name of your precious Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We human beings, as you well know, love to rebel. We were born with rebellious natures. And a key sign of our rebellion is grumbling and complaining, or grumbling and ingratitude. Grumbling in anger. Kids are a good example of this. Uh, I've I've had this conversation before with my children. Uh, Dad, can I watch TV, please? No, you cannot. But you never let me watch TV, though. You watched TV last night. But that was a very long time ago. No TV. Followed by grumble, 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 anger, grumble, anger. Now, it may be tempting to think that that sort of grumbling and anger is harmless, but it's not. If you learn anything from Israel's time in the wilderness, it's that grumbling, ingratitude, that sort of thing, is not harmless. You see, the grumbling and anger of my kids in that instance shows a lack of trust in Catalina and me. It means that in their heart, they think they can do better off without us. In their hearts, they think uh, that their parents do not know what is best, in that instance at least. And surely that is false and foolish, as rebellion always is false and foolish. Uh, but they are not only rebellious, but ungrateful for who bought the TV in the first place, who subscribed to the streaming service, uh, who purchased the movies they liked. We did. And here's the thing, this ingratitude and rebellion only brings discipline or chastisement. It does nothing good for them. It only brings discipline or chastisement. But if they confess, they will, of course, be restored and find mercy. And brothers and sisters, don't we at times act in a very similar way in our relationship with God? And this, of course, is what we will see in our text this morning. "...because God's love is steadfast in the face of our ingratitude, we must look to his provision of mercy with repentant and faith-filled hearts." "...because God's love is steadfast in the face of our ingratitude, we must look to his provision of mercy with repentant and faith-filled hearts." And so, first, I want to look at Israel's grumbling. I will consider their grumbling, and then we'll look and consider God's provision of mercy. Um, so, first, Israel's grumbling. This book that we call the Book of Numbers in Hebrew is called "In the Wilderness," which uh, is, I think, a better title. Helps us; to, it makes more sense of the book, I think. Numbers is the record of Israel's wilderness wanderings. It is the story of Israel's continued rebellion in the face of God's faithfulness. And their faithlessness leads to the death of the first generation and therefore a fresh start for Israel's second generation. In our specific text in Numbers 21, 4-9... Uh, falls uh, in a section of numbers section uh, the section is 21 chapters 21 through 25 uh, that is really the climax of their uh, of the first generation's rebellion in many ways this text is a summary of their time in the wilderness israel rebels by grumbling complaining desiring slavery in egypt over the promises of god and the hope of the promised land then god disciplines them or chastises them And they seek Moses' intercession. so Moses intercedes, and then the Lord provides mercy. This is your typical pattern for the uh, wilderness period. And this ultimately led to the first generation never getting to see the promised land, other than Caleb and Joshua. And earlier in the book, God says this very thing to them in Numbers 14. I hear these words. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephune, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Numbers 14, 28, 28 and following. So notice whose corpses will fall in the wilderness. Those who have grumbled. 14, 29. Now, our text is an example of this grumbling. The people say in verse 5, 21-5, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Do you see what they're charging God with here? They're essentially saying, We're going to die in this wilderness, and it is all your fault. Your fault, not ours. We're not to blame. You are, God. Not only did they blame God, but they complained about the food that he provided for them. So they blamed him for their current condition. They blamed him for their wanderings. They despised the food and the hand that fed them. And to make make matters even worse, the verses prior to our chapter, or to our section, uh, Numbers 21, 1 through 3, accounts a wonderful victory God gave them over the Canaanites, which serves to emphasize their faithlessness in the face of God's faithfulness, it serves as a contrast. You see, and so there is something deeper going on here than just grumbling or impatience. So we must ask the question: What is the basis or the root of the grumbling? See, the Israelites were tempted to turn back to Egypt because of unbelief. They lacked faith. The root of the grumbling is unbelief. They doubted God's promises. They doubted God's ability to fulfill his promises. They doubted God so much that they preferred the security that they had in Egypt. But this is somewhat understandable. Think about it. In Egypt, they knew what tomorrow would look like, more or less. They knew how things would go, how things worked. Year after year, there wasn't much change. And so they desired Egypt. You might ask, how could that be? They were slaves. I think there's two reasons they wanted to go back to Egypt. One, the fear of change. We often fear change, and I think we can relate to this desire. For example, sometimes people stay with a company knowing they should leave because they're scared of the unknown. Some people stay in relationships that they should leave for too long because of the fear of the unknown. It's frightening to walk in a wilderness. It's frightening to walk by faith rather than by sight. And so they feared change, but they also preferred Egypt because rebellious hearts prefer slavery over freedom. Rebellious hearts prefer slavery over freedom. We see this clearly in our culture today, don't we? It's as if people are begging to be slaves and throwing away their freedom one after the other. Freedom is hard, something we often don't think about. In many ways, when a person is freed from something, they are freed into the unknown. Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness of the unknown. When God sets us free, He is setting us free to walk by faith rather than by sight. And this can be frightening. And because they doubted God's promises, they refused to walk by faith, they were filled with unbelief, they were grumbling, they were angry at the Lord. Because of this, God sent serpents. Now, another good question we we should ask, why serpents? Is there any significance with the chastisement of the Lord being in the form of deadly serpents infiltrating a camp? I think there is. The serpent to the wilderness generation, would have brought to mind Pharaoh and his serpentine gods. You see, the snake was religiously important to the Egyptians. They worshipped a serpent god or serpent gods, one of the things they worshipped. And this is why, in part, um, it's significant that Moses' staff, God turned Moses' staff into a snake in front of Pharaoh. And so, what's the point? When God disciplines the people by sending snakes, it's as if he's saying, you want slavery? You want sin? You want the kingdom of darkness, Egypt? Well, here is the symbol of sin in the power of darkness. A bunch of deadly serpents. Here you go. Have what you want. Have at it. You want Egypt and their gods? Well, here you go. I'll gladly give them to you. And so, Israel... Was chastised by God because they gr- they were grumbling in their unbelief, desiring Egypt over the promises of God. I heard this uh, shocking story not long ago of a Christian man, and a, him and his family as a part of a PCA church, and he committed adultery and uh, on a business trip. And long story short, he. Uh, basically kicked his family out of the home and moved in the mistress to the family home. So his wife and kids were out of the home. The mistress was in the home. And this was, uh, this went on for months and months. And the mistress, and the whole church knew about it, the mistress had some sort of serious mental issues and she was addicted to drugs and whatnot. And after months of this going on, the man finally calls the head pastor, and tells them that he wants to repent, and he says, I need help getting this woman out of my home. Can you come here? She won't leave. Help me kick her out of my home. And so the head pastor and the associate pastor, who was a, a police officer, or he was a, a retired police officer in New York, they go to the home, and the woman, very intoxicated, assaults the head pastor. So they uh, physically assault him, so they call the police and then the woman physically assaults a police officer. And so, she was successfully taken out of the home and brought to jail. And so you might think, well, good, the mistress is out of the home, the man can truly repent, he can make amends, they can seek some sort of restoration, go to counseling, whatnot. The pastor finds out the next morning that the man, that morning, the husband, uh, bailed the woman out and brought her back to the house and shocking, but, but here's the thing. You see, the man was stuck in his slavery to sin. The second that he started back on the right track, he decided to turn back and be a slave again. We, at, uh, we all, at times, on the wilderness journey that we call the Christian life, get tempted to go back into slavery. We get tempted to be a slave again like this man. But we need to ask ourselves, do we really want to go back to Egypt? Do we really want to go back to Egypt? Do you think it went well for the man who bailed out the mistress and let her back in the home? The story, uh, it doesn't go well. If the Israelites went back to Egypt, would it have gone well with them? No. If you go back to the slavery of your old life before Christ, will it go well with you? No, slavery has nothing for you. Your old life has nothing for you. So we must keep walking towards the promised land, not being stuck, not getting stuck grumbling and complaining, forgetting how faithful God is, being unthankful for all his precious promises that never fail, since we worship a God who cannot lie. And so be content with the wilderness of the Christian life. Don't forget how bad slavery was. If you grumble and complain and become filled with unbelief, you may just get a taste again of the fiery serpent that was your old life. And it won't be pleasant. That old way of living was chaos and dysfunction, filled with shame and suffering. And although this wilderness journey we call... Uh, The Christian life has its own sufferings. Suffering on the behalf of Christ is to be considered a blessing and a joy, while suffering because of your own sin is guilt and shame. There's nothing to go back to. So continue to look forward to what lies ahead, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, for in the promised land awaits for us the crown of righteousness and an unspeakable joy. And if we trust in the promises of God and don't spend our time grumbling and doubting and being unthankful for him, you can taste that joy in the present. Because you, Christian, have been given the down payment of your inheritance, the spirit of the living God. How silly it is, think about this, how silly it is to grumble and complain about your present circumstance when in the blink of an eye you will be inheriting eternal life and will be face-to-face with your Lord. As Paul says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. David Livingstone, a missionary, uh, said something similar. He says, Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this be only for a moment. All these these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in us and for us. Amen. I also... Was struck by this line, and glorious things of thee uh, are spoken. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. What a good line! So our text this morning, Christian, as Paul tells us, was written down for our instruction. And so I, I want to put it very simply: Do not act like the wilderness generation. Let's not doubt God's precious gospel promises to walk by faith rather than by sight, never desiring to turn back to the powers that once had their grips on us. And so we have seen how prone we are to grumbling and the need to be content in the Lord's provision and the Lord's promises. And now let's consider God's provision of mercy, how he provides mercy for those who repent so we must never forget God's means of intercession. Now, after Israel had suffered the chastisement of the Lord due to their sin, the people repent. They admit their fault to Moses, and who is Israel's mediator, Israel's intercessor. And they say in verse 7, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So we see here that the people freely confess. They don't make excuses. They simply confess the sin. They say the sin as it is. And Moses intercedes on their behalf. And the Lord answers in verse 8. He says to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. This might be somewhat curious to us. Why a serpent on a pole, a bronze serpent on a pole. Two things. The copper serpent represented the now dead serpents that tormented the people. The once fiery serpents were now dead as copper. They were now dead copper. It symbolized God's mercy in getting rid of the fiery serpents from among the people. And also, it symbolized God's power over the Egyptians and their gods, Remember that the people wanted to go back to Egypt, and so God uses the symbol of Egypt and their gods, the snake, to bring discipline. And now they must look to that serpent up on a pole, or as some argue, a pike, which symbolizes that God has defeated the powers of Egypt. You see, it is a reminder of the foolishness of going back to Egypt. It's as if God is saying, I am the God who defeats the power of darkness. And you want to go back to the weak, elementary spirits of the world? That's where you want to go back to? And so so why a copper serpent as the provision of mercy? First, the symbol that God has freed the Israelites from the deadly serpents, and second, that God freed them from the serpent of Egypt and defeated the powers of Egypt. And so the Israelites then who repented sought Moses Intercession and looked to God's means of mercy, the symbol of his power over the kingdom of darkness. Are you, that's the question, are you looking to God's means of mercy? If my children disrespect their mother, after being disciplined, there is a provision of mercy. They must apologize to their mother and seek her forgiveness. And no matter what they do, there is always some provision of mercy. Always some provision of mercy. And Christian, there is always a provision of mercy for you. You see, in the wilderness of the Christian life, in the midst of all the temptations, you must look to God's provision of mercy. Brothers and sisters, if you have grown tired in your wilderness journey, Maybe some of you have begun to grumble, or at least we all have experienced that at times, forgetting God's faithfulness. You need to remember, God has provided mercy if you look upon Him who was lifted up. This serpent has meaning for us New Covenant believers. This is what Jesus Himself says from our our third scripture lesson this morning. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, when the Israelites looked upon the serpent on a pike, they saw their God as the defeater of the powers of darkness. And you, Christian, when you look upon your Savior on the cross, you are reminded that Jesus defeated the powers of darkness, Satan, death, and sin. As it says in Colossians, that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, or principalities and powers, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. To the old way of life, where you followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Jesus put those powers, the powers that were at work in your old life, he put them to death by the cross. The old way of life has been put to death. And so look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember, the Israelites walked by sight. And we're walking by sight, not by faith. Walking by faith, my friends, is essential to a successful wilderness journey. Caleb and Joshua were the only Israelites from the first generation who made it to the promised land. Why? Because they walked by faith. They weren't the ones who said, there are giants in the land, we can't go there. We can't, we can't follow God there. A bunch of giants. They had hearts filled with repentance and faith and trusted the Lord. And you can't walk by faith know this, you can't walk by faith without looking to him, Jesus, the author of faith. So never look away, for this Jesus is not only like the serpent who is lifted up in the wilderness, but he is also our intercessor, like Moses was for the Israelites. For it is said of Jesus that he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. And so no matter the hardships this year, No matter the temptations that come your way, the falls that you may have, God loves you in Christ, and Christ is interceding on your behalf and provides mercy if you look upon him who was pierced for your transgressions and has defeated the power of Satan and death for you. And this is something we must never forget, never doubt the promises of God. If I promise something to my children, what kind of father would I be if I go back on my promise? Well, God, our Heavenly Father, never goes back on a promise. His love is steadfast, regardless of your unbelief, ingratitude, grumbling, or anger. And so, brothers and sisters, no matter what happens this year, God is faithful. And so even in the face of our ingratitude, His promises remain, His love Remains And so with repentant and faith-filled hearts, always look to his provision of mercy, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Intercessor. I'm reminded of the words of that old hymn, O oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be, Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you our hearts. Ask you to seal them. We pray, Lord, that uh, this year we would grow and be sanctified in grace. Being wholehearted believers in all of your precious promises. Help us, Father, not to wander keep us from doubting your promises. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.